what's up writing better. So normally in most of my podcast interviews, I will have pre-interviewed my guest, asked them a series of like 15 prompt questions. Something that they say will give me a really good idea of what we should talk about on our episode. And then I make the main episode that topic. However, my guest today, Paul Fair, in addition to being one of my uh, longtime best friends, he's probably the best ghostwriter uh, that I have ever met. Um, he's got some amazing uh, ghostwriting credits behind himself. Um, and of all the people that I've just jammed with casually about the writing process and the book publishing industry, he's had the most interesting things to say. So for this episode, I'm going to do a longer episode where I interview Paul and ask him all as many of the questions that I normally ask in a pre-interview that I can get through. Paul, thank you so much for saying yes to being on my show. I'm stoked to be here, and uh, I would just love to let you keep talking about how amazing I am. So that's great. <laughs> <laughs> can you just um, give a uh, what are some of the um, writing credits that you have that you can talk about? Because I know ghostwriters can't talk about all their work. Sure. Uh, I've got a chance to work with Dan Martell on his Wall Street Journal bestseller, uh, Buy Back Your Time, which was a fantastic uh, book uh, published by Penguin Random House. I work with Sean Canungo, who's an innovation strategist. Uh, he wrote his book, The Bold Ones, that we worked on together with uh, McGraw-Hill. Uh, I had a chance to work with uh, an Olympic athlete, uh, Lindsay Dare Shoup. Uh, I helped uh, kind of book coach her and get her book edited, uh, which is amazing. I've worked with The Spy. His book hasn't come out yet. I've worked with someone who's uh, in the White House. Uh, their book is going through Department of Defense Review right now. So those are a few of the things I can talk about. I got to work with an oncologist on his uh, uh, integrative approach to cancer. So those are some of the projects I've got a chance to work on. And I sort of use the Woody Allen approach, which someone asked him, how do you get to work on so many cool projects? He's like, well, it's pretty easy. I go find the best actors and then let them do what they do best. And then I uh, take the credit for it. So that's that's kind of <laughs> what I do. I go find the, the smartest people in the world and I help them write their thoughts down. And then I say, I got to work on this amazing book. So that's awesome. What kind of clients do you typically target going after? And like how much of it is like you're going after high profile people versus what other like criteria do you look for? That's a great question. Uh, so I, I typically target a very specific client now, which is usually uh, thought leaders in the the business space. So like Dan Martell and Sean Canungo are both very good examples. Sean Canungo is very specific to innovation. And Dan Martell is uh, very big in the uh, SaaS world, which is software as a service. And he's sort of expanded that recently to just helping out business leaders in a variety of industries uh, get their time back. And so they're they're very specific in the business world is usually who I work with nowadays. And as far as uh, how I target them and all of that, I, I would say most of them come to me. I have a couple of different agents that I work with that I'm non-exclusive with, with all my agents. And so they'll send me, hey, here's someone uh, you should work with. And I, I'm not, I don't care much about their high profile. I care more about whether or not the content of the book I think is going to be amazing and unique. So that's what I look for. Someone who has a unique message. Uh, oftentimes they're super high profile and sometimes they're lower profile, but they have really something important to say. And so that's, I'm more concerned about the uniqueness of what they're saying and less about their profile. Yeah. You've talked about how you will make sure that like you tell potential clients like, Hey, this, you know, I, I want to work with people whose idea is, I forget how you said it, something like New York times bestseller worthy or something like that. You're like, I, I can't guarantee that you'll make it onto any lists just that I only work with people that are 
who, whose idea would be like worth being on that list or something like that. Um, how do you gauge like whether a book topic is worth your time? I, I borrowed something from one of the agencies that I get to work with uh, a lot, Lucinda Literary, and they just said it so succinctly. And they say that they're always looking for something that's both timely and timeless. So mm-hmm. in other words, something that is like being talked about right now, um, for instance, an upcoming book uh, that we we have coming out soon. We won't tell you who we're working with, but we're really excited about it is uh, geared towards children. And it's working uh, specifically talking about mental health, which is obviously a very big, important topic right now. But we're sort of narrowing it even further into how you can be kind to others and that can help everyone's mental health. And so kindness is a very timeless idea and mental health is a very timely idea where it's very Mm. relevant in today's culture. So that's one way is I look for something that's both timely and timeless. Uh, And the other thing I think is really I try to look for something that is just super novel and said in a very portable way. And so one thing I really love about Sean Canungo, for instance, is he's a storyteller, right? And that's very unique to the way that he tells everything. It's not like he has these seven steps to solve this problem. He's more like, here's a story. Let's pull these five ideas from this individual's life. And so I thought that was a very unique approach where in the business world, you see like, hey, make it step by step by step, which isn't necessarily bad. It's just that's the way most people do it. And his way of explaining how to learn something was to take it and break each story down individually and then sort of suck the best juices out of that story. And I thought that was unique. So I look for timely and timeless. And then also just for like really novel approach. I love that. Okay. I am going to just start asking you the questions that I typically uh, just ask, you know, to give from the gut answers to guests that I have on the show. My first one's nice and easy, Paul. The question is, what is a recent epiphany that you've had about your own process could either be a cre- creatively like your own uh, creative writing process, or it could be a uh, process business wise. But what's a recent epiphany you've had about your own process? That is a genius question. Uh, I was talking with one of my uh, other employees the other day, Kayla, who's absolutely as a fantastic editor on our team. And we, this is something I've realized before, but it's like I re-realize it every few months and like forgot that I, I knew it. And then it's so cool to talk to another writer who got it. And Kayla was saying, if there's ever an issue with your writing, you just more often than not, you can just flip it upside down. And she's so right. And that solves almost all the problems. So if you have like a section of a thousand word section of a book that you're writing and something's off and you just can't pinpoint what it is, you just literally flip it upside down. And usually that last paragraph coming first sort of solves the problem and then the rest of it flows nicer and all the concepts seem to fall uh, fall into the bucket that way. And it's so true. And even with chapters in a book, oftentimes you can just need to take out some chapter that's last and move it back to the front and it solves a lot of conceptual problems. I don't know why. I can't, I can't tell you why that's the case, but eight times out of 10, if I can't figure out what the problem is, just flip it all around and it seems to solve it. So if you're like struggling with a chapter that you just don't think is like, you know, you don't like the way it's written, you'll just flip the chapter upside down exactly so i'll do it i'll do it in a in a paragraph in a chapter in a section or in the whole book so if i'm uh so in any of those contexts i'll just flip the whole thing upside down so to take your example if i'm working on a chapter and something doesn't feel right i don't i don't just do it randomly but if something's if i'm like something is off and i can't tell what it is i'll go down to the end of the chapter and see what my conclusion is and usually that hides a nugget that i should have started with I'll literally dr- drag and drop the conclusion up to the front, besides maybe the hook story. I might make it right after the hook story. Mm-hmm. Drag and drop it to the front, 
that's the nugget that we're going to focus on this whole time and then almost go in reverse order and take 0.5 and make it 0.1, take 4, 0.4, make it 0.2, <laughs> leave 0.3 where it is almost exactly like that. I'm going to use my head and don't follow that to a religion, but, and by flipping it upside down and starting with the nugget that you sort of revealed at the end, because that's usually what the issue is, it helps reframe everything and expand it. Um, and that usually solves the problem and it solves that in paragraphs too. So oftentimes if you have a whole paragraph, that's really good writing and you want to keep it because it's gold, but you're like, something doesn't make sense here. It's usually the same thing. You take the last sentence and make it first and it reframes the whole paragraph and then it expands as it moves, uh, moves to the rest of the paragraph. I love that. Okay. You mentioned that you'll do it after the um, interest grabbing story. And I've noticed with your writing, I, I'm actually not sure if I've ever read a chapter of yours that doesn't start with a very interesting story. How do you figure out what kind of stories to put at the beginning of chapters? And is there ever a time where you wouldn't start with a story? It's a great question. Um, I think a story is my rule of thumb is unless you have a really good reason not to, which there are some good reasons not to, and it's a really compelling reason, like maybe there's an amazing statistic or this thought that you want to jump out the gate with and grab the reader's attention. If you don't have a really good reason, like use the story. And I, uh, so that's what I pretty much always default to. And there are some times when I don't do that. James Carberry's book uh, is one where I didn't do that every single chapter. There were several chapters because it was a quick chapter book. Like some of the chapters were only one to 2000 words. That was the style of writing we were going for on purpose. And oftentimes it was more funny or made more sense to start with a quick recap. Like, okay, guys, last chapter we talked about this, but come on, we just left you hanging. It was kind of more casual like that. And so I went a different route. I didn't always start with a story there, but 80% of the time I do. And how I find them, uh, I always ask my authors, like I, uh, as a ghostwriter, authors tend to have great networks and often have great stories. And if you can ask them to bring a great story for a specific subject and then kind of poke around or give them a jumping off point uh, and tell them, I kind of need a story that X, Y, and Z happens in the end. Do you, do you have one like that? And they were like, you know, come to think of it. And it might be one they didn't start with uh, to tell you. So I asked, ask my authors, I asked them to tap their networks is what Sean Canungo did. He actually posted on his, I think it was his LinkedIn. And he said, does anyone have, we need like the world's best stories for this book I have coming out. We've got a few, but does anyone have just an amazing, crazy story? And everybody in his network had like some random, amazing, insane story. There was like hmm. Sam the Banana Man. There was one about the world's uh, most prolific pirate who was a woman, Ching Shi, that no one ever talks about. She was uh, more successful than Blackbeard. And it was like all these crazy stories. And like everyone had like this one story they had heard in their life that was amazing. And so that was a great way to get stories. And then another thing I do now with the advent of ChatGPT is... I, I use it frequently and uh, I, it's a great starting point. I've pretty much never used ex like exactly what it spits out. But the other day, for instance, I said, I really need, I need a really good story about choke points uh, in business, but I want to use a story that has cultural significance and historical resonance. It's a true story. You have to put that in chat GPT now because it'll make yeah. stories, but, but it's, a, I need a true story that talked about a choke point. And then it came up with some and I said, no, make it more uh, in the medieval ages. So it comes up with one. And I started there and started reading about the choke points it was describing. And I ended up with this really great story that I had to go research, but it really originated with ChatGPT in about 15 minutes of research there that uh, was just a really fun story about uh, 
an Ottoman Sultan who took over Constantinople that had been, uh, been tried for 1200 years for someone to take it over. And finally the guy who did it, it was how he developed the choke point to take it over. So that was a really cool way that I used chat GPT and told it exactly what I wanted and kept narrowing. And then it gave me an idea and then I kind of jumped off from there. So those are some of the ways I do it. I love that you mentioned ChatGPT because it's one of the things that when I ask what's something what's something that you think is controversial in the world of ghostwriting, it's the most common answer I get is the use of AI. And I've talked to everybody from people that are like that are religious users of it um, to people that uh, that basically think that it's taking the soul out of writing. What would you say to somebody that thinks that ChatGPT takes the soul out of writing? I think there's a bigger thing going on with the whole conversation about chat GPT. And so I like to, I kind of like to zoom out if I can for like one layer into your specific, uh, from your specific question. And that's, I remember several years ago, uh, one of my employers, uh, through a series of conversations, if I kind of put all that together, basically said this, here's how you should write. And I'm like, okay. And it was go into Google, start typing in what somebody's asking, like, uh, how to what are the 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 five most important things about marketing but just start typing in a generally speaking on what the subject you want to write is yeah. and then see because uh, google will auto populate right like what the most popular questions are there and then that's how you should write is basically to answer those questions and i remember as soon as i heard that i was like if i get good at that i'll be really really great at being second to a computer in about 10 years. I was like, I'll be the best second place computer that's ever existed. So the last thing I'm going to do is do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to get good at that. There's no reason for me to get good at that. And I was totally wrong. It only took about five years. <laughs> I thought it would take 10. Um, and then the other thing that I've heard similar to that, and this has been going on since I was probably 15 was write like a third grader, you know, the old Microsoft word would actually dock you, right? It would say like, you know, you get your flesh Kincaid grade level score at the end or a little clippy would say like, this is like, 10th grade writing, you should dumb it down to the third grade, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And I remember reading that and I only half committed to this. I wish I'd committed further, but I remember thinking that's really silly. We should not, writers are supposed to be leaders, not followers. That doesn't mean that you write in such a way that people can't understand you, but you should be pushing society to think differently. If you are saying, what is everyone asking and how do I answer their questions? You're by definition following. And I just co completely disagree with that. And frankly- So what's the opposite of that? Yeah, the opposite is to go about it a totally different way and say, like, here's the question you didn't know to ask, mm. like what you're really trying to get at. And this is something I, I Dan Martell does really, really well. Uh, and I learned from him and I sort of developed this method that I have, which is a good book answers all the questions your readers are looking for. It's, it gives it an eight out of 10, specifically in prescriptive nonfiction. So that's I'm not talking about fiction book, but in a nonfiction yeah. book. An eight out of 10 book will answer the questions that the reader picked it up for. A 10 out of 10 book will will answer the questions that the reader really wanted to ask or that they didn't know to frame to ask or they were too scared to ask. That's what a, it will read their mind and say, the real problem you're having is this. You don't want to ask it because of this. Here's the psychological struggles you're having. And someone who really knows an industry or is a really good writer or thinker will know to put that, uh, will know how to deal with that problem. And then they'll also lead with writing that is very unique and different. Because what ChatGPT does really well is write at a third grade level super, super well. And I will be honest, it is better than eight out of 10 of the writers. And I'm talking professional ghostwriters that I have read. I would rather read something from ChatGPT than eight out of 10 of them. Um, because they've all been taught to write pretty much the same way, which is like vary your sentences with you know a short sentence and a long sentence, make it three sentences per paragraph. And they've explained all these rules. And when you write according to rules, um, a computer will do that better. So I think you should develop your own unique voice 
or if you're a ghostwriter working with different authors, think of something super unique and a unique voice that they have, whether that's shorter sentences or longer sentences or more flowery words, basically break all the rules, develop a unique voice and don't make it exactly like people say to do it. Um, and that's in the music industry. It's the same thing. Uh, there's studio musicians who've learned to play excellent pieces of music, which is a good job to have. But the, what they're looking for when they're looking for a standout musician is someone with a unique voice, someone who sounds different than exactly the way a teacher would teach it. And that's what you have to do for all of your writers. If you're a ghostwriter and if you're a writer, you have to learn to develop something unique that doesn't sound exactly like people say. Yeah, I really like this because this is something I've been thinking about a lot. I'm writing, uh, I'm working on a project, which is going to be uh, the night, like the things that a, an author should do 90 days before they launch their book, and then what they should do in year one of their book having been launched. And it's very interesting to research those questions, because you get a lot of like canned answers to questions that an author might have the the internet basically just has like a thousand regurgitations of the same answers to the same questions but because i have the it's all based on this fundamental question i've been asking which is how does an unknown author sell thousands of copies of their book predictably and i ask this question to everybody that i interview but i have answers like experience based answers to this question as somebody who i would still consider myself an unknown author has predictably and can predictably sell thousands of copies of my book and i want to teach this to other authors and it's it's very exciting how there's like a thousand regurgitations of the same answers to the same questions but i can i can look at them and i can go oh well here are the answers that make these questions irrelevant or here are the answer here are the things that you can do that make it so that you automatically do all this stuff while also doing this main fundamental thing that nobody's even talking about or here's you know here's a third option that i've tried that doesn't seem to show up in any of these answers and yeah. this this reminds me of what you're talking about i feel like the differentiator for the most part is like probably some combination of actual experience solving the solving the problems um and like a outside the box which is kind of cliche to say but outside the box thinking um and um like an obsession with problem solving like solving problems with questions like an, an upset a, obsessive like desire to uh like s solve yeah solve hard problems um there was a question in there that I was going to ask you. Oh, there's two questions. One of them is, what's your approach to getting your clients to do this? Or is it just that you've already chosen the correct clients in the first place? And then I was curious if you had an answer to the question that I asked. We could take them one at a time. Answer the first question for me. Which is, how do I get my authors to, to do this? To go for or, is it, or is it in the first place in how you choose your clients? Yeah, I, I think... Yes. I, I think it's a couple. I think I have to answer them both at the same time, actually. And I think mm -hmm. it comes first if you work with an author who actually has something to say, because if it's just like 10 best practices on marketing, I'm not really sure we need that book, frankly. Like I can Google that. Right. If they're like playbooks that you can find anywhere, go online and find them. Um, it, when I was working with Sean Canungo, another great, like a great example, like we had a rule, like you can't talk about Jeff Bezos. You can't talk about Steve Jobs. We're not going to talk about Google or Bill Gates. And why did we have that? Because he was talking about innovation. And so 
if you go to chat GPT, it's like, show me, and I've done this, I've tested it. Like I've asked it about innovation, like a thousand different ways. And no matter what, it's going to come back to Steve, Jeff Bezos, Steve Jobs. And the reason why is because it's taking information that other writers have written before who frankly were lazy and wrote about the same things over and over again. And it's just regurgitating that. And so I work with Sean specifically because I knew he would have no problem with saying, we're never going to talk about Steve Jobs. We're never going to talk about Jeff Bezos. We're never going to talk about that. And he was like, yeah, I don't want to. Let's talk about how pirates were innovative. Like who does that? Like, let's talk about how uh, Sam the Banana Man started a fruit company. That's interesting. Um, you know, and uh, that was like super different. And so first of all, I work with authors who are willing to do that. And then the second piece is is important. It kind of stems from the first one, but it's really, really important on how I get them to do that, which is you have to really, really push your authors. You have to remember as a ghostwriter, they're paying you for a few reasons, but the the, the probably their biggest fears is number one, sounding stupid. And number two, sounding like everybody else. Mm. Like if you did nothing else and you didn't do those two things, no matter how good or bad your book was, if you didn't make them sound stupid and you didn't let them sound like anybody else, they would probably be like a minus, like no matter what you said. And so that you have to remind them of that frequently because while no one wants to sound like everyone else and no one wants to sound stupid, the safe thing to do is to sound like everyone else. So they start out with that desire, but then somewhere along the process, they're going to be like, oh, this is different. This is different. I don't want to do that. Like, that's a crazy idea. Like, I, for instance, I was working with this one author and I said, let's write letters from Santa Claus to the reader at the beginning of every chapter. Uh, and this wasn't a kid's book. This was an adult business book. Mm -hmm. And this was one of the most creative, innovative people I'd worked with. And he was like, that's so odd. And I was like, exactly. Like, that's why we should do it. Like, it's going to stand out. And he was like, I just don't know if I can do that. And <laughs> you have to remember it. Right. It's 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 challenging. But you have to remember, like, they literally paid you to make sure they didn't sound boring and that they didn't sound dumb. And most writers will make sure they don't sound dumb. But you have to remind them, look, I am here to make you sound unique and different and do something different. And you have to let me do that. And trust me when I say this, you want to do this. This is literally why you pay me. And the reason smart people pay other people a lot of money is not to do what they told them to do. It's to tell them what they don't know and not let yeah, them do something they shouldn't do. Hundred percent. That's why. That's right. That's right. Just getting to the whole uh, when you talked about the um, like you can you can if you I'll never write a book about a, a playbook on you know best marketing practices. My my thinking is more like if I if I am somebody with with a unique like set of wins when it comes to marketing, then. I can look at a I can look at your average marketing playbook and identify the things that it should be saying that it's not saying. And that to me is an interesting that would be an interesting new playbook. So that's kind of the angle that I'm coming at, but of course the only things that I've, yeah. I I don't I don't write prescriptive nonfiction that's not in the form of a playbook at least not yet. So I am coming from the perspective of like playbook writing. Um uh there was a question in there too, but I lost it. <laughs> Switching gears. I have a, a oh, different good. question I want to ask you. Um, and I I think this might have been the the main thing. The, your answers to this might have been the main thing that made me want to do an interview with you in the first place. The question is, in what ways do you think self-publishing, like the industry, in what ways do you think self-publishing is flawed? Uh, the industry, the business model, how do you think it's flawed from the perspective of authors? How do you think it's flawed from the perspective of vendors like you or me? That is such a great question. Uh, yeah, I I think there's a few different ways. I mean, man, that is such a good question to me. And maybe you did ask that, but I don't remember 
exactly <laughs> I think we were talking was. about the downfall. We were talking about the downfall of scribe media. It's just in a casual conversation. Yeah. And you started riffing on how the their approach to the industry was flawed. And it like got us talking just about how self the self-publishing industry is flawed. So I don't know if that helps jog your memory on anything that you said. I don't actually remember what you said. I just remember you had a lot of unique things to say. <laughs> yeah, I think uh and I want to be careful with Scribe. Um, and I know you weren't saying this at all. The, the interesting thing about Scribe Media, which is something, do it repeatedly, even if you even mechanically do it repeatedly. Like if you want to learn how to write really well and you don't know how to write, like just start copying Shakespeare, just to start copying Ernest Hemingway. Like somewhere along the process, if you want to learn gymnastics, just start doing what the coach says. Even if you don't understand why, if even if you can't grasp it, if you want to learn how to do math, like at some levels, just start hammering away at it and the whole time be thinking of why this is working. And the interesting thing about scribe is I think it gave me a lot of repetition. I actually worked there for a while and I think they had a lot of things flawed, but I, and I think some of what they had flawed is what the, was wrong with the whole industry, but it, it gave me an opportunity to see that. And I think they really tried to make it go at it. But I think one of the ways that the whole industry is flawed from, from everyone's perspective is it's really, really, really difficult to write something really, really good uh, repeatedly. How do you scale creativity? And people, mm -hmm. the reason why I think writing has this exact problem is when it comes to drawing, a, making a painting that someone wants to see, most of us cannot do that, right? Like most of us know that we cannot, maybe Timmy can, because he's an amazing artist, but Paul knows, and most people off the street knows they cannot paint a picture that anyone else would ever pay to see um, or would want to see. But in writing, we've all had to write something that was for other people to read. So because we've all had to write a blog or write an email or do a little bit of writing, we think, oh, writing a 50,000 word book, it's just what I wrote to my boss times a hundred. That makes sense. And I appreciate the the tenacity of people that that think that. Um, but the the frank truth is is to to write a long book, it it is it, it requires the same amount of artistic ex expertise, in my opinion, as painting a beautiful picture for it to make it good. Period. Mm -hmm. And so when people try to say, and I think this is what Scribe did, there's a canned way to do that every single time. Uh, I think you have to be that that takes an insane high bar of creativity. I mean, you look at the Walt Disney Company and they have had periods where they've had success after success after success after success. And they've had decades where they couldn't put out a hit. I mean, just the last several uh, movies have been blockbuster, uh, like like they've been horrible at the block uh, box office. They've lost money in a lot of their last several movies, even with Pixar. And mm -hmm. they know exactly what they're doing because creativity is really, really hard to do on demand. And I think people just forgot that with books. And I think a lot of people, when it comes to writing, they optimize everything but the writing. They're like, and I'm not saying this is bad in general, but like this podcast, I mean, my team does it too, right? We'll take a podcast that we, when we do a podcast and then we'll make a blog out of it and we'll have someone else do the blog. We think mm -hmm. that the writing piece of it is like not that big of a deal. Well, that's easy to do. We got the content. And what people don't understand is that writing well in a way that people want to read it is, is an art. It's very difficult. And ChatGPT is a very good example is if you zoom in, it's pretty decent most of the time. And we've taught yeah. people it's okay to be pretty decent. So the truth is, if your goal is to be 70 to 80% good, well, Chad GBD can do that every time. It's always hitting a B minus. So why do I need you? And that's a really good question. And I actually don't think people shouldn't ask it. I think we should be honest and be like, if you're competing with Chad GBT, maybe the truth is we don't need you. And you shouldn't have listened to the industry and we should stop listening to the industry when a B minus is okay every time and start respecting writing. This is from everybody's perspective. It's very, very difficult to do. And I think Scribe Media kind of got to this point where they thought they had it canned and figured out and they could just 
put creativity out on a timeline. And when you do that, you have to be very careful. I'm not saying it's impossible, but my team has a process that we follow. Uh, and we don't always hit it hundred percent. There's oftentimes we're late or we don't get something quite right, but we have creativity inserted at certain points where you have to be creative. Like it's literally your job to sit down and stop and be creative in this section of what you're doing and think about it totally differently and be willing to do something radically different and challenging and creative that's off book because otherwise it's very easy to say, I took a transcript, I wrote a chapter. I took a transcript, I wrote a chapter. So I think the challenges for the industry are really number one, understanding you want a Picasso. What particularly business or people that are writing prescriptive nonfiction, they come to a ghostwriter saying, I want a system. I want a process that will spit, spit out a Picasso. Mm -hmm. What do you happen. think? Of it's very hard to do. And if you can figure out a way to do that, like Disney world, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask, what do you think of the idea that there's, um, you, it's okay for you to be not as good at chat GPT at the craft of writing provided that your content or the quality of your content, the quality of your thoughts is far above average. Like, do you d agree with that or disagree with that? So I think, I think I have two ways to answer that question. If I, if you put, if you know, if you put the proverbial gun to my head and say, you have to answer it, I would say I disagree with that. Mm that it, the, the quality does matter. But I think it's a more nuanced answer. I think it deserves a more nuanced answer. And the answer is this to me. If your goal is to be, like, think about it like a race car driver. If your goal is to be a race car driver, you need to be learning from Jeff Gordon and you need to be also trying to surpass Jeff Gordon and then his expertise. You need to be saying, I need to be the best. If, if, if you're trying to be a professional writer and that is your lifelong destiny that is in your life, you need to be the absolute best. The rest of us still have to be pretty darn good at driving a car. Like we can't even be a 99% effective at it. We have to be 99.99% error-free when we're driving. Uh, we're not getting in wrecks every hundred times we get into a car accident. It should be like every 10,000 times, right? So the rest of us, we don't have to be Jeff Gordon, but we have to be pretty darn good at it. And I think ChatGPT can do that for most people. So if you're a business person and you just need something that's pretty good because your real goal is to deliver an XYZ message, I think using ChatGPT could be a great solution for you, honestly. But if your goal is to be the world's best writer, uh, I don't think ChatGPT is ever going to get you there. Like I don't even think. But I don't close. think the average thought leader is trying to be the world's best writer. So, like, obviously, from a ghostwriter's perspective, you want to become one of the world's best writers, a hundred percent. But yes. the person who hires ghostwriters, or, or even the person who can't afford to hire a ghostwriter, but but they're they're they have or I uh, can't afford is probably the wrong word. Just the person who. The, the thought leader is not trying to be the world's best writer. They are trying to deliver thoughts that are unique, action-oriented, um, and, uh, and are new. And I just don't think that... I think that... So, you know, if Scribe's model was to pair good writers with excellent thought, with excellent thought I think that model could have worked. But see, that wasn't even their model. Their model was almost like turn everyone into an author. No, that was 100% their model. Like that literally was their model. Like their, their motto, their M-O-T-T-O, was something like 
we said this all the time, like everyone has one book in them or every person can be an author. It was literally, that was literally the practice of the company and the belief of the company and the goal of the company. And to your point on that, and I don't know if this is what you were trying to say, but I would, I'm not a hundred percent sure I would marry this, but I think it's worth considering that chat GPT can pretty much take any of your thoughts and arrange them in a pretty good way and then spit out some decent writing. Uh, I think that's probably true. Uh, I don't know if everyone's thoughts, and this is something I can't remember if it was Ernst Hemingway or someone said it, but said like writing is the closest, closest to thinking. And if you want to start thinking more and challenge your own thinking, even chat GPT is not going to do that for you. And so it sort of optimizes what you have already thought, but the act of writing also increases your cognitive abilities and makes you really try to understand what you're doing. And so I would say that that's another consideration as well. Yeah, I agree. Um, what is something that, uh, that clients of yours struggle to understand, but if they would just get it, or if they would just apply it, it would, uh, be so good for their book. Wow. Timmy, uh, you ask really <laughs> great questions. I put a lot of thought into these questions. <laughs> yeah, clearly that's a great question. I, I think it's a couple things. Um, there's a few I would say. If I had to boil it down to one, that would take me a minute. But off the top of my head, I would say number one is I'm a pretty confrontive person. Uh, my other option was to be a lawyer. And so I don't have problems sticking up to people. But most ghostwriters are not like that. Most of them are introverted. Most of them are a little quieter, a little softer. And they don't want to have to argue with you all the time. They're just trying to do what you ask them to do. And I would actually argue that when it comes to writing your book, this is the person painting the Picasso, like if you're not a painter, why are you even trying to tell them which color to use? It's a little silly most of the mm -hmm. time. I would say trust your ghostwriter if they would get that. Um, again, I don't have as much problem with that because I usually kind of get up in their face and I've lost a, a few times, sure. But I would say that's the first thing I would say would be really helpful. Uh, and then the second thing I'd say, and, and Scribe Media, uh, for some of their mistakes, they did this pretty well, is to communicate to authors that everybody, almost everyone that I've worked with has this crisis where they think that nothing they said in their book, it's like three fourths towards the end. They're like almost finished. They think that they didn't have anything valuable to say that their whole book is trash. All their ideas were terrible. They're a complete fraud. It's like this moment of insane imposter syndrome that billionaires, Olympic athletes, spies, doctors, all of them seem to have it right about 70 to 90% towards the end of their project. And if they would just understand like that is going to happen no matter what, like you're going to have this existential crisis and think that everything you ever thought and said was all a fraud. And like, you have nothing to say in this world, just like realize like that's not true. Uh, that would really help them out. Mm, yeah. What have you found is controversial? Do you have any thoughts on what you think is controversial in the world of writing aside from AI? Yeah, I, I think I, I would just reiterate, like, I think really, really challenging your readers is a good thing instead of saying, well, what do they want to hear? I think we have way too much of that in our society. I think 99% of our society, like, this is a common practice in business. For instance, it's answer your customer's questions and give them the information that they're asking for, sell the exact product that they need. It's like, basically, this is how business is done today, which is read the reviews, build the exact product that your customers want and deliver it to them. And I actually think that's like really, that is a, a really good way to be really mediocre at something in your life. Um, I think you'll make money doing that and you'll 
you'll never leave a legacy and you'll probably live and die thinking like, oh, I made money off the marketplace. And my answer to that would be like, good for you. But if you want to like do something that, that, that changes the world, stop asking what people are asking and start asking what the world needs. Start saying, what do I have to offer? And usually it's really deep truths. And this is something I challenge every single one of my authors, even if they're writing a business book, which is what most of them are. I say that we have to find universal truth in this. You have to show the reader something that is buried in the DNA of humanity and buried in the DNA of the literal dirt that we walk on that comes out in business that you have discovered that is like, you cannot argue with because it's so true. And it it, it doesn't matter if it's challenging or not challenging or it's in vogue or not in vogue. And I would say that that's really controversial because people today simply want to answer, it's sort of the Amazon approach, right? It's like, give them everything that they want as soon as they want it right now. And I would like to me, like you're never going to change the world like that. If you're going to want to change the world, stop giving people faster horses and ask if there's a way to reinvent transportation. I love that. Um, do you think that there is a process to creativity or do you basically have to approach every project that you do like you're doing a whole new thing? This is the literal question of my life. I have this dream. Uh, that my wife will probably laugh at me for if when she hears this, but it's like one day to get my PhD and go back to school. Like when my kids are, you know, I'm like playing with the grandkids. It's like in the meantime, I want to get my PhD. And it's just part of it is to solve or hopefully get into this question you just ask. Like, is there a process to creativity? And I just, it's like my life's question, I would say. <laughs> um, and one of the places I have found it, it's really fascinating to me is. I figured this out while I was writing a book. There's this sort of method that you do. And I think it's how everyone does any sort of creative process in almost any industry or any field, which is like the first thing is, is you have to figure out what's going on. You just sort of like turn the lights on. Right. And that's like, what, it's called discovery in law, in legal work. Like the first thing mm -hmm. is, is like you go through all the discovery, you get all the evidence, you ask all the questions because there's probably some stuff hidden and people do this in marketing and they bring on a new client. They're like, it's called discovery, right? It's like, what's happening? Like what's really going on? Who's really your target audience? You probably do this when you're writing books. I do it when I'm writing books with my clients. Well, the first chapter of a book is the same. It's like, usually call out your reader in prescriptive nonfiction and you tell them like, here's the problem you're facing. And it's like, oh yeah, that's it. I'm glad somebody understands me. Mm -hmm. And it's called, it's, I call it turning the lights on. And then the second chapter, you almost always have to take a step back in prescriptive nonfiction because like the first chapter hooks them and it's like turning the lights on. And the second chapter, you have to like take a step back and like start setting the table, but nothing really seems to happen yet. You sort of ask a more sideways philosophical question or something a little more historical that seems off the beaten path. And then in chapters three and four, the book gets going and starts laying out the, the like solution. And it's like, boom, 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 creative, creative, creative. So it's like this turn the lights on then be willing to slow it down, take a step back and then jump into it. And you know, what's so fascinating and part of the original stuff is separating, right? There's like the separation of like, what is the real problem? What's not part of this problem? What's the real issue? What's not part of this issue? And you're kind of in a separation thing. This is going to sound crazy, but I found this when I was going over the days of creation in like the, the mm. Jewish and like Judeo-Christian story. I didn't okay. mean to do that. That wasn't like a backdoor. I realized one day the very first thing God does. If I was in charge of, of creating the universe, I would have put the sun and the moon in first. That's what I'd have done. That's Paul Fair speaking. It's not what God right. did. He did the lights first. First uh -huh. thing, turn the lights on. So in other words, like, what are we working with? What's going on here? And uh -huh. I'm like, okay, if God needs to see things clearly, if God needs to see things clearly, how much more does Paul Fair need to? So 
I think that's like the first step of a creative process is you really have to be willing to wipe the table. And if you look at the masters of any art, whether that's engineering master or a scientist or Timmy Bauer, who's fantastic at illustration and putting kids books together, the best of the best usually take it really slow at first. Right. Uh, I heard this story from my uh, father-in-law who talks about uh, his carpenters. Um, and he said there's one old carpenter he has comes into every day and he just measures every single thing. And my father-in-law works in these million dollar mansions and these insane remodels. He's a G he's a general contractor, but he's this one carpenter that he loves this old guy who comes in slowly, measures every single thing in the house and does nothing the first day, except measuring. It's like, okay. Then the second and sometimes third day, he said, he's just cutting all of his measurements. And he said like literally by the third or fourth day, not one thing has been put up in the house. And he says, other mm -hmm. contractors immediately start. They like go to the living room, measure something, put something up. Go to the, the family room, put something, measure something up. Go to the bedroom, whatever. He said, the fifth, sixth, and seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth day, that carpenter destroys everyone else and how fast he puts everything up. It's like insane. Mm -hmm. He said how quick. He said he'll finish weeks ahead of everybody else, but he hasn't done anything supposedly for the first few days. And that's what I've noticed masters do. They always like, they turn, they figure out what's really going on and they separate all of the idea, the good ideas from the great ideas, the great ideas from the genius ones. And they, they do that. Now they're, they push themselves forward. They don't stop there. And in fact, you said something like this to me once, which is like, always try to get something done every day. It get to a stopping point. I think it's a really good goal. I don't think we always hit it, but I think it's a good goal to have. Mm -hmm. And, and what's interesting about the second day of creation, I, I didn't know this all the other day. It, God doesn't say it was good. Everyone thinks every single day he says, I built this and then it was good. He didn't say that hmm. on the second hmm. day. Second day, he just, he just separated things. He, he, he put the waters and the land and didn't, didn't say it was good. Just separated the waters. The hmm. third day, he says something's good once the land came up and then he built something else that it was good. So the third day, he said something was good twice. So to me, that said, the first thing we have to do is turn the lights on. The second thing we have to do is often just separate stuff and just like figure out what's going on. And it's okay if nothing seems to happen for a second. But if you did it right and you were willing to live in that sort of odd space, right after that, you just pick things up and things start firing and clicking so much faster than they would have if you just started running in there trying to do stuff. And I think that's what the masters of every art I have seen do. And whenever I'm facing a problem where I keep hitting a problem in a book conceptually or I got the chapters mixed up or whatever, I've learned that it's because I didn't take an hour or a day in the front end. And if I had done that, I would have saved myself so much time and energy later. So I think the creative process is really that original, like turn the lights on really figure out what's going on, being willing to separate good ideas from great ideas and like figure all that stuff out. And then just, to, I think that's, I don't think that's like a perfect creative process, but I think it's a really good general one that I, that I tend to follow. I love that, Paul. And I think that's probably a good spot to end this interview. So um, if writers who just heard you deliver all this awesomeness want to, get more out of you where would they go uh you can go to storypress.com and we spell story s-t-o-r-i-e um so storypress.com is a great place to learn more about us um you can also find me on linkedin i'm paul fair the third uh if you look up paul fair there's like a hundred bazillion of a super common name but paul fair the third usually limits it to just me um so yeah linkedin or storypress and you can also email me at paul at storypress.com and love to answer any awesome. questions you have awesome thanks paul